Good afternoon and welcome to a slightly delayed episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air from the AAVMC. Um, welcome to the show. This podcast is a program of the AAVMC, the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, um, to, and it is a part of our Diversity Matters initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our members institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at AAVMC. In today's episode we will explore generation gaps in veterinary medicine and specifically looking um, at an example in academic veterinary medicine. So I'm excited to say that we are joined um, by um, two individuals from Western um, University of Health Sciences Pomona at the College of Veterinary Medicine. We have um, Dr. Philip Nelson, the Dean of that institution, as well as Mr. Soon-to-be Dr. Leo Hoagland. Um, and um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, the first question that we wanted to kind of talk about, uh, ask each of you is, um, what generation do you associate yourself with? Or do you even think about whether or not you are a part of uh, a generation? So um, Arturo, I'm going to actually start. I'm sorry. Arturo is our producer today, and he will maybe be asking some questions. So um, Arturo, do you want to introduce yourself for a moment? Yeah, hi everyone. So my name is Arturo Munoz, and I'm so I'm currently attending California State University Fullerton, and today I'll be um, behind the scenes helping Dr. Greenhill with today's interview. So yeah, great. Thank you. So Leo, actually, well, what generation are you a part of? Um, so I consider myself a millennial. Uh, another, I guess, a generation would be Generation Y. Um, and I did a little research trying to see the specific date. So according to Google, uh, it's usually between, if you were born between the 80s up to the mid 90s is what the, con you, the consensus is. All so right. I what, fall in that group. What the, what the Google says. And so Dr. What Nelson. I'm a baby boomer. You're a baby boomer. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm curious, do you actually buy into the hype that there actually are generation gaps? I Dr. guess you're talking. Yes. Um, you know, I guess the word gap uh, uh, is probably a little challenging. I do believe there are differences uh, between generations um, and that those differences are, uh, are induced by the experiences that a certain generation has has to go through. Um, you know, um, uh, my parents lived through World War II. I lived through the political era of uh, the uh, of the Vietnam War. I was born during the Korean War, uh, but the Vietnam War uh, had a significant impact on on me personally, because I came of age of, the, of, of age for the draft, just as it was being ended. And uh, it was a, uh, 
uh, scary uh, prospect to grow up knowing that you might have to go to war uh, and, 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 and making war a much more personal uh, issue if you, if you were um, more, most likely to be drafted into the army and then sent overseas for a limited war or police action, if you will. Those kind of things have a dramatic impact on, on your views toward uh, work, toward war, toward college, um, uh, toward, and, and if you don't have those things in your life, if, they, if you don't have those challenges or those fears, then you're, allowed, you're allowed to focus on other things that might have um, uh, just as much of an impact, but may impact you differently. So I think those things lead to the, to the differences that you see in um, uh, between generations, and they call that a gap. So Leo, how do you see um, a, a gap manifesting? I mean, you're, I guess uh, that would be two generations later. So um, I consider myself an Xer, Gen Xer. Um, and so um, there was very few kind of um, major wars um, when I was coming up. Your um, experience in, in life, I would assume, would be a bit different given um, our involvement in um, various conflicts around the world. So how do you see, based on what Dr. Nelson has kind of described, do you see that as, as um, impacting you and your generation differently? And, and how do you see um, those gaps, air quote, um, um, kind of bumping up against these other types of generations? Yeah. Um, I, do, I do feel that there are uh, gaps or differences, whatever you want to uh, call them. And, and it's just the the, the uh, social political environment that you you grew up in. Um, and again, I growing up, I we I didn't grow up during a, a war. I didn't have that the fear of getting drafted. So uh, I felt I feel that depending on uh, the time frame you you grew up in, you you are focused on you're allowed to focus on on different on things. And growing up myself, we, at least my generation, I feel that we got the, the tail end of the generate of the technology uh, boom. So uh, feeling myself and most of my classmates that are around my age, I feel that we're very tech savvy slash independent, whereas some of the older generations uh, either don't understand it or stay away from technology. Uh, and so that those are the major differences on how we learn, how we interact with each other, how we communicate. And so I, I do feel that there are those differences can be a hinder, but they can also, uh, depending on how we use them, they can be a bridge uh, in communication and understanding each other. So how does this play out in a classroom um, when you have a hundred or so um, would be millennials in class. Um, the school is, is wired up and um, you have um, a population of digital natives um, potentially being taught by someone who isn't a digital native. Um, has your experience been that um, 
uh, those generations, those probably multiple generations of folks that are teaching you or have taught you since you'll be graduating soon, um, how adaptive have they been during your experience in school? Uh, well, for the most part, I, I feel that uh, our, our faculty have, they've embraced the way that uh, I guess we learn. The good thing with our program, I, I can't say that for, for the other schools, is we're very student-based uh, learning. So it gives us the opportunity to, for us as individuals to, uh, to teach our, or I don't want to say teach, but uh, study and look at material the way that we like it. Whereas some of the more didactic uh, campuses, you're stuck in a lecture room and then you have to absorb what the, the professor has to tell you. So I feel that at least the, the student-based learning does allow for that uh, fluidity in the teaching styles. And, um, and as far as like uh, communication, so myself, I like to communicate through email and uh, text versus in person or phone call. So I feel like uh, communicating with professors that way allowed me to uh, it allows me to open up and uh, address more issues that way that I feel more comfortable and I feel that most of the professors to respond to email and so that communication um, at least for, for myself I can't speak for for all my classmates or for all the students but um, has allowed me has been a good good compromise okay. So, Dr. Nelson, I'm kind of curious about, um, you've been at a number of different institutions, so I'm, um, I'm kind of curious about what you've seen over um, the course of your career and um, how have various kinds of gaps maybe manifested and, and, and how do you think, I don't want you to speak totally on behalf of your dean colleagues, but I would kind of be um, curious about your thoughts um, because Western certainly does use a different type of um, model that um, is often talked about. Kind of how does that compare in terms of facilitating um, dialogue across generations? Uh, so if I, just to make sure I'm, I'm responding correctly, I think I heard two different questions. One sure. was, was how has, how have these, how, what have I noticed in the evolution of the gaps yes. uh, uh, since I'm so old? And the second <laughs> is um, uh, how, what is my impression of how uh, technology has, has, has impacted our delivery of, of, of uh, education? Yes, uh -huh. and because you're so wise, not old. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. See, I, I heard the word season the other day, um, and I felt like a well-done steak. But anyway, um, I think that, um, you know, uh, when I first started uh, in academia, I was, I was the same age as most of the students that were in veterinary school. And so, um, uh, that that's a very poignant question for me because there was no gap at, when I when I started uh, in academia as as an assistant professor, and I got caught up in that change. I mean, you know, you're hearing people say that the students are getting the team be getting younger and younger every year. Well, you know that that definitely happened to me because I stayed in academia. I started, uh, be, be, I became, uh, I began become introduced to changes in, uh, in, in workflow and in how we approached 
um, uh, uh, communication. And I remember when I was at Mississippi State in the uh, late 90s, um, you know, uh, well, first of all, I should go back to when I was there in the early 80s, when we were the first schools required students to buy a computer. And at that time, there was a lot of uh, concern about whether or not they were wasting their money buying computers because we, there wasn't a lot of software for them to use. Uh, but we thought we saw um, the need for them to become facile in computer technology. Uh, and so uh, we required them to buy the first Mac that came out uh, as part mm -hmm. of the curriculum rather than surgical instruments. We, we provided that. And, and made them buy a computer instead and, and learn how to use it um, as part of their studies. Um, I was amazed at how quickly they adapted to it. Uh, one of the generation gaps that I see is between me and my grandchild, uh, because at that time when I was buying computers, I would not allow my children to freely access the computers because they might mess it up. And yet my... <laughs> You know, and 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 at the time they were pretty. They were they were three times as expensive as they are now. Uh, and you could you could uh, essentially root a computer through the software because it was that that fragile. Mm. Now my three-year-old grandchild will take an iPad and test out anything she wants and has no fear in doing that because of the advances in technology. And I'm always amazed at how easily she adapts to uh, uh, to the uh, uh, computer, the human computer interface, and that has definitely uh, uh, been transmitted in the classroom itself. I, I don't know if you realize this, but this year, the kids that were born when Facebook was established are—they're coming to college this year. This is the wow. year that we truly are going to start educating digital natives, people who have been comfortable with communicating by Facebook all of their lives, not just 75% of their lives, ever since they've been on the planet. And even though Leo has just told you how comfortable he is in communicating with technology, I'm still not sure we, we know how to um, communicate uh, civilly or mm. with or without significant risk using digital media. Uh, there's an article that I that I talked to you about that I just read are calling entitled uh, um, um, "The Cuddling of America's Minds," and in it they talk about the the fact that many professors are now fearful of what they might say in the classroom because of the way students now use social media to either out or rave about their courses and their professors. And the baby boomer, the baby boomer professors are concerned about how their reputations are going to be uh, handled in the hands of millennials as they use social media to rate their courses. And so these are some of the challenges that we're going to get. And I'm and because 
the digital natives are so comfortable with this technology, they aren't they they are not yet as skeptical or concerned about the potential risks that come with it. And so we are having to deal with those challenges as well, even though we 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 think we have a more open environment when it comes to the use of technology here. Would you agree with that, Leo? I would, yeah. I, I can see some, there have been instances some of the professors have, have been uh, more hesitant to, to use the uh, social media platforms uh, in, in fear of something going out and, you know, getting retribution that way. So I, I do see that point. Well, so, you know, what you've described, Dean Nelson, I could, I guess the next step then might be some, how do you see that playing out? So you've got a, a bunch of, uh, you know, this next generation of, of veterinary students um, coming in two to four years at some of our schools. Um, and um, for some of our international members, they're going next year. <laughs> They'll be here um, this fall or um, next year. And um, it sounds that because of their comfort um, and the, the comfort with having so much information and commentary um, available to them and um, available for distribution, um, that there potentially is a is some friction there with um, particularly boomers who I mean if they're like my mom and dad whom I adore are like I don't want to be on the face page take me off of the face page yeah. so how will that how will you as a leader um, <laughs> lead your students and your faculty to kind of bridge that gap uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I think the first thing we have to do is is uh, uh, dispel ourselves of the fear of Armageddon. Uh, uh, you know that um, even though um, we may have some concern about uh, about the digital natives not being concerned enough about privacy issues, etc. What we really should be looking at are the advantages in, uh, uh, that we can gain in applying these new technologies because they far outweigh, outweigh uh, uh, the risks. And, and we can't stop that movement, not, even if we wanted to. And I don't think, I, I'm not suggesting that we should want to. Um, I, I think that um, uh, the millennials and, and, and the generation behind them are going to force us to start uh, meeting their demands for more efficient transfer of information, for more independent approaches to learning that information, and for different ways of assessing their competence in ways that will reduce their cost to achieving these degrees. And, uh, and, and, and the moment we, we, we accept that, I think the the uh, uh, the virtual walls will rise, and the actual walls that uh, 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 maybe maybe enclosing nothing 
in terms of the primal institutions that we that, that we venerate so so well now. Uh, uh, I'm actually challenging our faculty to look at our curriculum again and to come up with ways of uh, of delivering at least half of our curriculum virtually uh, in order to lower the cost to our students. If our students can stay home three quarters of the year and then be assessed for competency, uh, 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 for competency um, and that, re that may require at the moment, may require uh, visits to the campus rather than living near the campus, then suddenly our campus becomes accessible to the East Coast, much more accessible to students on the East Coast or internationally, if you will. If all we're talking about is a plane ticket three to four times a year in order to be, um, in order to be assessed. So, uh, Leo, if you had it all to do again and that type of program was available, would you <laughs> consider doing a program like that? Um, I feel, well, I feel like that's, that's very, the way that I learn is uh, uh, learning on my own and then having, having that reassurance with having that, the fallback with professors asking questions and stuff. So if that uh, is available and it, it does save me, because the one thing that most of, of my classmates are worried about, and, and this is throughout no matter what degree your students are talking about, is the tuition debt that we come out of. Um, if we can bridge that, then I, I wouldn't see why a lot of students wouldn't sign up for programs like that. Wow. So, um, Dean Nelson, what you've described um, for some uh, out in the profession um, is an amount to heresy. So, <laughs> um, and in fact, um, some folks know that I actually studied this particular issue, aspects of this issue um, in my own dissertation. And I found that veterinary leaders of all of the different types of education models, the one that they were most skeptical of um, was um, distance or online learning. And, you know, I, I certainly sit in meetings and those discussions have evolved, um, but we still have quite a few folks in the profession um, that believe online learning is, um, is a YouTube video and um, and that's really kind of it. Like instead of the, the lecturer <laughs> standing there giving you the, <laughs> the lecture, um, you're able to watch it on YouTube and that really is the extent of it. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm kind of curious um, about um, this idea of um, these things that really for much of education are not novel anymore. How do you think your colleagues, and I mean really kind of way out in the field, not certainly just in academia, but um, you know, I'm kind of curious to know what you think, um, is veterinary medicine ready for this? Well, whether they're ready or not, we're gonna to have to move in that direction. And I don't know how fast that's going to occur. So, uh, so let me say first that um, I, I realized that, you know, uh, 
how close to heresy that sound, you know, you know, the idea that I just proposed sounds. But um, uh, sometimes when you're describing an idea, you're not able to properly accentuate the issues that cause concern. The things that people uh, are concerned about uh, are, uh, and I don't mean to diminish the importance of, those, of, of their concerns. Competency-based education uh, uh, allows us to focus on the competencies, the competencies themselves. And once we do that, we can think of a number of approaches to assure the quality of our graduates. Uh, and it's not as simple as whether it's going to be a lecture, face-to-face -face lecture, or an online transfer of information. Veterinary medicine is as much a technical training program as it is a theoretical program. Uh, uh, we expect our graduates to be able to do surgical procedures on day one. And for the good of the patient and the client, we have to make sure that we provide assurance that they're ready to do what we say that they do. And that is going to require, as Leo said, some type of interaction with the faculty. It can't be all virtual. And so uh, usually what happens in these discussions, it's all or nothing, you know, it's, uh, and, and, and that's not what we're proposing here. What we're proposing is as we learn to apply these technologies, how do we do it in ways that both addresses the cost of education without diminishing the assurance of the quality of the competencies? And that's the challenge, you know. Uh, and, uh, and Leo mentioned the, the tuition cost, but half of the cost, half of the debt that, these, that our students uh, incur are living costs. And, you know, it's not all tuition. And, uh, and if we can reduce either or both of those costs, we've, made, we, we've moved the needle. And so we should be looking not just at how we instruct, but where the student learns. And when there are only 31 uh, veterinary, accredited veterinary uh, institutions within the United States border, then we have to figure out how do we get a population of 320 million people where 1% of them might want to be veterinarians access to the veterinary community, to, to, to those veterinary institutions. That's our goal. Mm -hmm. With, you know, uh, uh, but we have to always maintain the, uh, the quality of the profession. Absolutely. So I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, Leo, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm kind of curious to, to know what are you, uh, you'll be graduating in uh, what, uh, eight, day, eight days, 10 days? Uh, I'm sorry, 11 days, I think it is. Um, I'm looking at my calendar. So what do you plan on do and how, doing and how do you see, um, uh, you know, what do you see you and your colleagues um, who are millennials doing maybe differently? What kinds of ways do you conceptualize veterinary medicine um, through um, your own generational lens? 
Um, well, I'll be starting a lab animal PhD residency program uh, in July. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Um, I feel, well, I want to say that with, at least with a lot of the classmates and a lot of uh, students my age uh, going into the field, um, I feel like the, we see, and I guess this is what my experience going through fourth year and having the distributive model, having working with preceptors that are uh, some generations um, below us, um, is we kind of had to forge the communication gaps um, now. So we had a little head start compared to some of the other uh, schools. So, and it's just, so the future employers that we, we seek, um, working with them one, on, um, on day one, that they're going to want to do stuff one way. We are going to need to bridge that gap and say, yes, we understand, but have you considered doing this? And so that was as a, a good experience going through fourth year is going to the different clinical sites and working with uh, so many different preceptors that it kind of uh, gave us a good understanding on how we can communicate with uh, fellow colleagues and also uh, mentors and future employers. Um, so I feel that, at least with our generation, uh, I feel that, I don't want to generalize, but I, I think that we're a good team player generation. Uh, we can say that we, we try to, we can take, we don't have a, an issue taking multiple team uh, or team job roles in order to get the job done. And I think that that is a benefit for us going into the new, into the, the work field. Good deal. So um, I actually do have um, a generational differences chart, and I am going to um, read a few of these uh, kind of characteristics um, because I'm kind of curious about your reactions to them, um, characteristics and core values. So um, some of the characteristics for baby boomers. Um, you have uh, a high ability to handle a crisis, you're ambitious, um, you challenge authority, you're competitive, there's um, a bend towards consensus leadership, um, there are good communication skills, you're idealistic, you're loyal, um, and uh, you are multitaskers. You're also very optimistic um, and willing to take on and accept responsibility. So, um, Dean Nelson, mm. <laughs> is that yeah, you? <laughs> I, I resemble that remark. No, um, I think every, everything but multitasking. Um, I don't consider myself a multitasker. Uh, I, do, I do get involved in a lot of activities. Uh, but I don't necessarily think I do well trying to do two or three of them at one time. Um, uh, but other than that, I don't take issue with any of the others. Uh, uh, most of them are, are, compl are, are compliments to me if I actually am what they say I am. Uh, I do strive to be all of those things. And I think that's what's important. Those are my values. I, you know, uh, uh, it would take someone else to say that I was loyal, uh, even though, you know, I strive to be loyal, but whether I actually make it or not, I think depends on the person that, that or institution that I'm supposed to be loyal to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so it's difficult for me to make, to, to give myself those same characteristics. And I don't, 
and 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 not being a person who studies generation generations or generational differences, I'm not the person to say that that's my generation necessarily. I do think that we're competitive. We've always been, you know, my generation has always been competitive, and we've always had, um, unlike uh, what uh, Leo said, uh, we did not, we were not necessarily trained to be part of a team. I think that was unique. That was unique in 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 our generation. I think some of us uh, uh, saw it, and and I think there were certain areas that we accepted it. You know, if we got drafted into drafted into the armed forces or joined the armed forces, we realized we were going to be part of a team. But when we went to vet school, most of us expected to to be in a solo practice. That has changed over the generations. And I'm I'm particularly intrigued to hear Leo say that uh, he at least uh, and he believes some a lot of his peers uh, uh, want to be part of a team, which is consistent with the changes in veterinary medicine or in delivery of healthcare uh, in general. And that bodes well for what we're trying to do in in making the profession uh, uh, more efficient and more effective in uh, uh, delivery of healthcare. Okay, good deal. All right, I'm gonna come back to this issue of change, but but first I'm gonna read off some uh, attributes for my list for millennials. So Leo, I'll give you a chance to comment on um, whether or not these uh, uh, kind of speak to your soul or not. So, um, so millennials are ambitious, but not entirely focused at ease in teams, um, diversity focused. Um, you have not really ever lived without computers. You're eager to spend money. You're fiercely independent. There's really a greater focus on family, children, and friendships than on work. Um, you are greatly indulged by fun-loving parents. Um, you uh, are high-speed stimulus junkies, kind of interesting. You're innovative, um, you're loyal, um, you're sociable. Um, there is that me-first attitude in work life, again, which is that you're more focused on um, non-work activities. Um, you're highly scheduled even for fun things, um, very tech-savvy. Um, and you think that mature, you think mature generations are cool. <laughs> um, I would say I would agree with half of those things. <laughs> um, I, I I do want to talk about uh, the the selfish or that, that we're selfish. I don't think that's a tr true. I mean, it, it might be to other generations, uh, but I think that we we at least for for my viewpoint, I feel that. I we try to want we we want a balanced life, so we're not gonna dedicate our entirety to work. We do want uh, to have a social and spend time with family. So I think if that's being selfish, then I guess that that, that could be construed from other generations who were. I, and this is just seeing my parents who were more focused on work and getting ahead and moving their family ahead and spending time with their with their families. Um, so they put work first, and I guess growing up like that then we, we saw that we didn't want to we didn't want that for our families or for our friends or uh, how we we were going to raise the next generation so i think it's it's coming from that perspective that we we switched the that viewpoint of 
yes, we do want to work and be independent, but we don't want to, uh, uh, I guess, leave the other the other social or our family friends behind just to get ahead and work. So I, I think that that I would say it's more of a balancing than than anything. So that I don't agree with. Um, but for the other parts, eh, I mean, there's always there's always going to be uh, differences and. And I don't know who came up with that list, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm assuming it, it wasn't a millennial. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's going to be how your perspective, so. Sure. Um, I, I didn't mention that um, the millennials are also kind of characterized by having, um, it says, um, uh, the helicopter parents. And, you know, I think that, that um, it's an, it's it's interesting because there are um, and I will share this um, list of um, different kinds of values and attributes of um, traditionalist boomers, Gen Xs, and um, millennials um, on the show notes. But you know some of the things that I see, particularly in the millennial listing. Um, <clears throat> seem to be at odds um, and so it'll be kind of interesting to see how that group changes over time and so um, one of the things that I see in the boomer descriptors are that um, boomers um, were originally skeptical of authority but as um, boomers age um, they become far more similar to traditionalists um, time equals authority um, and so I'm kind of curious, Dr. Nelson, about your thoughts on um, do you see generations kind of maturing to be more similar as we all age? <laughs> the closer we get to the banana peel moment, um, are we more similar or are we more different? You know, that's a good question because I can't, you know, I think, um, uh, I can't tell you if if we're more similar to our to the preceding generation at this age or not, I do know I, I you know the uh, up, the intuitive response is we become more acceptable of authority because we become authority, um, you know you know as as we age, and therefore whatever changes we were able to make when we were young, you know that was our contribution, and and now it's time to stop fighting. And, and, and it's time, you know, and now we have to administer it. You know, we, we now have to run the show uh, and, be, and then we'll turn it over. I guess that's a good question. I guess that's a good question for Leo to answer in the next 20, 30 years. You know, I would like to address though that, you know, the, there are certain trigger words you have in those um, generational char uh, characterizations. Uh, uh, I know that baby boomers, tend to cringe when they, when millennials are described as being more concerned about their family and that, you know, than baby boomers. When baby boomers interpretation is, we are devoted to work because of our focus on family. Uh, and we're willing to make that sacrifice for family. Uh, and that's how we rationalize the hard work, you know. But it's also how we rationalize selfishness of millennials and when I have discussions with practitioners who have millennials who don't want to stay an extra hour uh, uh, in practice or don't want to, to do emergency work a certain night or 
they don't understand it because they see it as a career killer. They see it as, well, you know, are you going to be satisfied with what you're doing now? I mean, don't you want to give, don't you want to show us what you can be? Can't, aren't you willing to invest into, in this practice? And, and it is from their perspective of how they see life and how they approach the family. And it becomes interpreted as a selfish motive uh, or, or, or a, or a um, immediate gratification motive rather than an investment approach. And that's a major difference, I think. But they both value family. You know, I don't think, yeah. you know, I, I don't see it as, as selfish at all. In some cases, I think we're also a little envious that we aren't, a, we weren't able to do that because we, we, it, it was our sellout to the culture that we, that we were brought into. And as much of, and as much as we claim to have been uh, rebellious of authority, we sure sucked it up in, you know, and, 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 and bought into that particular, uh, 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 pedagogy. So, you know, I just think it's, it's the values are, I think, and Lisa, you said this all along, the values are generally the same. It's how we approach those values that are different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you. So in our last couple of minutes, I want to give um, each of you an opportunity to speak to um, the, the younger version of yourself. <laughs> so, uh, Leo, we're going to start with you. So, um, you are on your way out of vet school and in a couple of years, or again, internationally this year, um, the generation Z, I think is what they're calling them now, um, will be entering, um, undergrad as well as professional programs. So, um, in all of your generational wisdom, <laughs> what advice and wise words might you impart to um, the future you? <laughs> um, let's see. I would say, as far as tr uh, trying, uh, I guess the, when I, one thing I can say to be the most effective is uh, try different modes of communication or communicating with, uh, let's say, your colleagues, professors, future employers, because um, I think bridging that that gap in communication and uh, understanding their viewpoint um, will help you in the, in the long run. Uh, not only for you to to get where you want to go, but and also uh, to help the the other party uh, understand your viewpoint. So I feel that sometimes we, uh, as a younger generation, try to take our uh, stick with our stances too much and try not, and we try to, um, I don't want to say burn bridges, but we we tend to get a little rattled when uh, people don't want to understand our viewpoints. But again, it's just going back; they're not understanding us; we're understanding them. So I would think my words of wisdom would be uh, try different modes of communication uh, with uh, with people and uh, you'll find a way of mutual understanding and common ground that you can bridge that gap. All right. 
no Twitter fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so Dean Nelson, what um, words of wisdom do you have for Xers, Ys, Millennials, and Zs? Oh, okay, so I have a different question. You don't want me to talk to my young self. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you know, if, uh, for, you know if, if I were a member of that generation, I would, I would have to say, you know, to, uh, to trust yourself. Make sure that you understand who you are and, that, and, and to find solace in the need to take care of yourself. Do not let others set your timeline for you. It is not, there are no pat answers. And, and more and more, there is there, uh, uh, the rigid timelines that we are used to are slowly devolving. And so set your own goals, do it in your time, and be true to your own values. 